The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown. To zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast and radio show. We are speaking with Maura McDonald today. She's serving as the Interim Environmental Director of the Walton Foundation. Maura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you've been with the foundation for about 11 years now, is that right? Yeah, a really long time. Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about the Walton Family Foundation and uh, and kind of what it does? Yeah, so the Walton Family Foundation was started, oh, about 30 years ago by Sam and Helen Walton as a, as a mechanism really for their family to come together around issues that they care about and to work together to address those issues. So the foundation has three major focus areas, uh, K-12 education reform, the environment, and then um, what we call the home region, which is uh, in primarily in Northwest Arkansas, uh, where they do a variety of things like many family foundations in the place where they are from. That's awesome. And so uh, you've been doing the environmental aspect for a long time. So what kind of projects are you currently working on? So uh, the environment program focuses on um, protecting and restoring oceans and rivers and the communities and livelihoods that they support. So we work on the freshwater side in the Mississippi and in the Colorado River, where we work on water quality in the Mississippi and we work a lot with agriculture and water quantity in the Colorado, where they're experiencing a lot of drought. And then in the oceans work, uh, we work on fisheries reform and management in um, five countries, the U.S., Mexico, Peru, Chile, and Indonesia. And then we work on um, improving the demand and supply of sustainable seafood through work that we call the global markets work. Awesome. And next week, we're going to bring uh, Teresa Ish on the show, and she's going to talk about the seafood program. So on this episode, we're going to focus more on the freshwater aspect of the Walton Family Foundation and and how that's helping uh, certain issues with that. So uh, have you been on the Colorado River? Like, have you done any of the Grand Canyon at all? I have not. Some of my colleagues have. I've focused more on the Mississippi River, which yeah. is... Um, you know, means that I spend more time um, in cornfields in Iowa than on uh, the river in the Colorado. The Colorado doesn't reach the ocean anymore. Is that still true? It doesn't, both because of reductions in flows from consumptive use and really because of the dams, the large dams yeah. that we've put on the river. It no longer reaches the sea. We did have a moment recently in, I think, 2014, when um, they had a planned controlled release from the dam to do what they call a pulse flow. And at that point, for that small period of time, the Colorado River did once again, you know, flow through its delta and reach the Sea of Cortez. But that is not, unfortunately, a regular thing. Yeah. So it's a magical place. If you ever get the chance uh, to 
to go to the Grand Canyon and uh, do that trip. It's it's pretty intense and wild. And I, I did it when I was 18. We did 17 days and I, I kayaked it. But I remember they were doing uh, fish studies there. So they were dropping and rising the river significantly. And that was helping them like scientists uh, find the fish and count them. I don't know too much about it, but it was kind of neat. So we would put our rafts on the beach and we would get out and camp and then we'd wake up in the morning and it would be like, you know, 500 yards away or, from the shore. Our raft would be way yeah. up on the beach. We'd have to carry them down because the rivers were just, the level was going up and down so much. Um, and it's the the Hoover Dam and the uh, the Glen Canyon Dam, I think. So in mm-hmm. between that. The, there's a lot of endangered fish in the, in the Colorado and they, um, you know, they've really suffered. I don't know how many, there's like more than 10 endangered fish species and we've really hurt them over time with our, with our damming of the rivers. And so um, it really controls a lot of the water management out there. So you're not, uh, that's not an uncommon experience. Yeah, I've heard too that there is a certain nutrient flow that can come upstream. So we always think of nutrient flow going downstream. Um, but I, I've read articles and and stuff about uh, the, I think, Columbia River, for example, just because it's cut off so much from dams that through the food chain, I guess that's how nutrients travel up a river. Um, some of those nutrients aren't getting there. And that's maybe why they think the sturgeon populations aren't doing well. But um, that's a whole a whole different issue but let's oh. talk about the mississippi yeah <laughs> yeah so is it the biggest watershed in the u.s in north america well um you know people count it different ways but it, uh the missouri uh which is part of the mississippi and the mississippi together are the third largest watershed in the world oh wow and they cover about 33 percent of the U.S. and and a little bit of uh, Canada, a couple of two Canadian provinces, just a tiny bit at the southern ends. After the Nile and the Amazon, it's the biggest. But what what type of issues, like what type of issues is the Mississippi watershed currently facing that you're working with? We work a lot on the water quality issue. The the Mississippi is a largely agricultural watershed. It runs through the center of the country. It's some of the most productive farmland in the world. And um, it's also just by its nature, it's a leaky watershed. So the nitrogen and the phosphorus that we that people apply to grow corn and soybeans and other crops end up traveling out of the agricultural fields and into streams and eventually into the river where they cause algae blooms in freshwater. And then when they reach the Gulf, it causes the dead zone, primarily in the summer, after the big pulse of uh, spring flows that bring a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus. We have experienced this annual dead zone for more than 30 years. It's extremely large. Um, We've seen some of the biggest ones in the last couple of years. Um, and so that's that's one of the big issues that we work on. It's the primary issue that we work on. But we also touch issues like habitat and uh, water, sh- you know, overall watershed health along the way. Mm-hmm. It's crazy to think that, I guess, nutrients from Canada would be going down into the Gulf of Mexico through this big kind of conveyor belt, I guess. But I, I was reading that uh, sediment isn't really making its way down to the wetlands near the Gulf of Mexico? Is that from like dikes and damming and stuff? Yeah, the, so it's a related issue, right? In that 
we've done a really good job of managing the river for human uses. And the river is a really excellent highway uh, for grain and for fertilizer and for all kinds of petrochemicals that we move on barges up and down the river. And the other thing that we've really optimized for in our managing of the river is to reduce flooding for communities. And those were really smart things to do 100 years ago um, when we wanted to develop the center of the country. But um, the particular ways that we have done it with levees and the very um, you know, strong levee system in the lower part of the river managed by the Corps of Engineers has cut off the river from its floodplain, from its historic floodplain as it moves towards the ocean. So historically, you know, the river, as it uh, slowed down, as it neared the Gulf, it would slow down and spread out and drop sediment. And that built the coastal wetlands of Louisiana over the last, you know, 50,000 years. It just typical deltaic formation, just as it got closer to the river, it would just, as it got closer to the sea, it would just spread out and just drop the sediment. And that just built, you know, year after year, it would deposit sediment and build up underground until suddenly you had land sprouting and then you would have vegetation on that and then it would, the land would grow more. And as we uh, wanted to use the river for transportation, we built this levee system that essentially kept the water deep so that we could pass deep draft ocean-going ships. And um, what it does is instead of allowing all that sediment to settle out, it shoots it off the continental shelf. (laughs) And so um, it accelerates the problem with the dead zone and it diminishes wetland. It it essentially stops from um, coastal wetland from being nourished by the freshwater and sediment and it and they as a result have begun to erode and so we lose you know if we were to look at the time from about a hundred years ago when we built that levee system to today we're losing a football field of land about every hundred minutes oh my god um, and it's a huge problem and it's it's a problem for fish and wildlife because Those wetlands are the nursery areas for a lot of the fish in the Gulf. Um, They're important for for ducks and geese and all of the coastal birds. Um, They're important for the oysters and, you know, all the coastal fisheries, shrimp. But it's also important for people. I mean, in part because people depend on those fisheries, but also because historically those wetlands were kind of like speed bumps for coastal storms, for hurricanes coming in from the Gulf. The hurricane would come ashore and it would start to lose power and speed over the wetlands. And as those wetlands have decreased, we the coastal communities are more and more exposed to those storms. So it's a huge problem. Do they absorb toxins? Like I know there's a lot of talk about wetlands being sponges. Yeah, I mean, they absorb one of the problems we have such a big dead zone. One of the reasons we have such a big dead zone is because the river is no longer passing through all those wetlands to pick up the nutrients, the phosphorus and the nitrogen. Um, They absorb whatever comes through them. And, uh, you know, nitrogen and phosphorus are in the right balance. 
can be good for building wetlands. Out of balance, they can get it, it can be detrimental, but they can be good for building wetlands because plant you can have more plant growth, right? And that can accelerate land accretion. So yeah, they're good uh, sponges for helping purify water and helping keep the system in just in balance too. We need more wetlands, more, uh, I, I sort of feel like it's like the, the kidneys. We need more filtering actually throughout the whole system, not just at the mouth of the river. And that would go a long way towards addressing our water quality problems. And also as we experience more intense storms uh, with the climate changing, that would really help us be more resilient. Absolutely. You know, I see some wetlands being filled up here in Canada for development. Is that an issue as well along the Mississippi? Um, yes, we, we've lost a lot of wetlands in the Mississippi River writ large in the watershed. In cities and urban and industrial areas, we actually fill wetlands and we, we build on them. Yeah. In the agricultural context, wetlands are not protected in the same way in the agricultural context. So we don't lose them. They don't, they, in other words, people don't like fill them up and turn them into something else. But they, um, they basically, their functions and their values are just significantly diminished oftentimes in the agricultural context because they can be like essentially farmed. You know, when they, when they dry up in the spring, you can plow right through your field, including the prairie pothole or the, the lower spots, and then you can grow corn or soybeans on it or whatever. And, and some of that can be fine, but um, we, haven't, we haven't done our best maybe to identify and protect the, um, enough of the wetlands to make sure that we have the kind of uh, resilience in the landscape that would be really good to help manage water, especially as in the face of a changing climate. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. Is the Walton Foundation, the Walton Family Foundation, are they funding uh, some like restoration work or like what kind of projects are you guys yeah. funding in Mississippi? So we do a lot in the coastal area um, on restoration that that's but that's really like large scale restoration projects like we'd really like to see some changes in the way we manage the river. We'd love to see some of those levees have um we don't want to we don't want a situation where any communities are left unprotected or where the river is left uncontrolled but we'd like to be able to selectively reconnect the river to the floodplain into the wetlands so that in the spring when we have these large flows with lots of sediment we could recreate that natural coastal wetland formation so we do a lot of work down there where we try to work with the Corps of Engineers and the state of Louisiana to try to change the way the river is managed. Upstream of that, we do habitat restoration, as well as um, working with farmers on improving the agricultural practices, integrating conservation into agriculture. One of the big things that we do in the habitat space is to work with farmers who have frequently flooded lands or um, economically marginal land because it's maybe the soils are, are, are too light and are too erodible. And we try to get that land uh, in a voluntary way to help farmers who, because they lose their crop every other year, every third year, we try to help them enroll their agricultural lands in easements to get it out of production and to return it to trees or to pasture or to wetlands 
so that we can kind of start to rebuild that filtering capacity back into the watershed. And then the uh, third big bucket of things we do is the is working with farmers. And, you know, farmers, I think, have really themselves come to think about how they can change some of their practices in order to improve their soils. So we do projects with farmers that help introduce them to those ideas, although a lot of farmers know about that now, and then help with like the technical assistance and financial assistance to help make a transition to that kind of farming. I thought about a question I wanted to ask, though, going back to the delta and how like the river spills out into the Gulf. If that shipping lane needs to be there, uh, I'm assuming that it is, right? Like it's still important to have a shipping lane come from the Gulf of Mexico up the Mississippi. If we still need that deep channel, how do we restore that natural shallow delta? You know, um, those engineers are really, uh, they have a lot of ingenuity and they're really smart. And they actually have a a lot of options and they've been really, really innovating in ways where we can still have a deep water channel. We may not have the same one over time. We may end up with um, a different channel, but where we can still manage the river in the way that we need to for shipping and we can selectively divert the river at key moments. We don't need to do it all the time. We can focus doing it at high water where it's really easy to still have the amount of water you need to have a deep water channel because the river gets so big and so high in the spring. And what's great about that is that the spring is like the key time to um, divert the river because that's when it's carrying the most sediment. So, Mm -hmm. um, Those those crafty engineers have come up with some like really cool structures that divert just part of the flow. And they actually they're just so smart. They were able to they're able to like take the flow from the exact part of the river where it carries the most sediment. So you build land the fastest and you restore the wetlands the fastest. And you want to do that in the spring, too, because that's the most compatible with uh, restoring also the oyster fishery and the other fisheries in the Gulf. It's tricky. We got to be like super smart about it because we don't want to shut down shipping. And, you know, the all of the farmers up and down the river rely on the being able to have good and inexpensive access to shipping on the Mississippi River. But um, but we've learned a ton in 100 years, and it's uh, it's time for us to kind of update our thinking about what, uh, you know, smart navigation and flood control system looks like. And um, just to make it a lot more compatible with our natural system, which will benefit all the all of us. Right. Yeah, I, I like this theme of keeping our standard of living, but using technology and like you're saying, these very intelligent engineers who are using ingenuity and and stuff uh, to make things better, but still keep human lives uh, on a, a good level, right? Like, uh, you, we don't want to take things away from people so that they're, they're living a miserable life. Um, we still want the ships to come up because it, they're needed for farming and stuff. Um, but then, you know, we can restore a lot of the natural world and... Uh, and use some some smart people to do it. So I think that's great. 
That's really the kind of hallmark of the Walton Family Foundation is we try to look at how we can create conservation solutions that work for people and work for the environment. Yeah. And because we think that that's what makes them durable, right? And mm. um, we see, we think that, you know, as we, as the climate changes and as, um, you know, these, these issues evolve, we see more and more opportunities to like, be smart, right? To use technology and use innovation to, to find these solutions. And we think that the more people understand how um, livelihoods are connected to natural resources, the more they'll buy into these kind of solutions. Yeah, absolutely. And a, a healthy planet usually means healthy people. I think if people are, are healthy and doing well in life, then they can focus on things other than just surviving and can start to look into how they can help with environmental issues and other issues around, you know, outside of their immediate uh, life. So, yeah, they're definitely interlinked for sure. Yep. That's yeah. exactly what we think. I think that's great. Um, so it seems like you have had a really big and nice career in sustainability. And uh, I want to talk about your career a little bit and how you got into this path. And if you have any advice to give to younger listeners who are also looking to have a sustainable career. Sure. So I, um, I went to school in the late 80s. And um, I, you know, had the um, bug to like do good things for the world from you know, growing up and my, I grew up that way with my family and my parents were like that. And so, um, when I was in college, I decided I was going to study Russian so I could stop the arms race. Wow. And at the same time I got interested, I got introduced to environmental issues. And so I ended up doing some interesting things. Like I did my senior thesis in college on the uh, emerging environmentalism in the Soviet union and really excited about that kind of work. And then um, the Berlin Wall fell and there was just really a lot of, of change in that space. And so I did, I left college and I worked for a couple of years in this field where with the Soviet Union falling apart, all the Eastern European countries and some of the uh, former Soviet Union countries were uh, trying to figure out how to have environmental laws and regulations and trying to sort out like what the, what that all meant for them and how to do those balancing things. And so I spent some time at the Environmental Law Institute and uh, supporting this work that was going on to basically help these Eastern European countries with drafting their new environmental laws. And while I was there, um, I started to get interested in wetlands and in water issues. And it really captured my imagination and particularly the wetlands piece, like, you know, where water meets the land and all of the richness that happens there. So I ended up um, working there for a while, editing a journal called the National Wetlands Newsletter. And that just kind of took me in this whole direction um, where I... Uh, got involved in wetlands and streams, and, and I had a number of jobs, and and I ended up uh, at the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, where I was running their wetlands program, and uh, I stayed there for a while, and I loved working there because um, in philanthropy, the thing that's so great is that there are people all over the country doing amazing projects, and in philanthropy, you have an opportunity to help them, and you help them with money. But you can also help them with um, making their projects better because you see a ton of projects and you can help them connect with 
other people doing something similar that have had different kinds of experiences and lessons. And you really sort of have this opportunity to help build the, the movement a little bit. Um, and so I really liked that. And then um, I decided that I should go back to school. And so I moved to Minnesota and I got a PhD in geography. And I really kind of doubled down on my interest there. And I wrote my dissertation on um, the Mississippi River. And I looked at uh, flood control and agriculture in the Mississippi River Delta. And I tried to really get at this nexus between um, federal natural resource policy, state natural resource policy, like how we as a society choose to manage natural resources and what it ends up meaning for the people who live there. And so I looked at um, these flood control projects in the Mississippi River Delta and looked at agricultural policy, um, land ownership sizes and patterns, and I looked at race and class and those, those issues. So, um, so I thought I was gonna grow up and be an academic. And then when I was finishing my PhD, I just this I just had this serendipitous thing happen where the Walton Family Foundation was starting their environment program and they wanted to have a Mississippi River program. And they knew already that they wanted to have a Mississippi River program. They wanted to look at the Delta restoration and um, just all of these issues that I had been steeped in for years working on my PhD. And so, um, so I came here and I've been here <laughs> the 11 years since then. Oh, that's awesome. That's a really cool path that you've taken. And yeah, it does sound like a lot of it was in academia. So you must just be full of knowledge. <laughs> nerdy, very nerdy. So um, <laughs> my advice for people is um, I think it's good to, you know, look around and uh, for young people in college or shortly after to look around and, and have like goals of being in the, um, you know, figuring out where you want to be and, and having those goals. But I think it's also really good to to, to try things and to have different experiences. Because, you know, if I had just kind of stuck with the Russian stuff, I'd be on a totally different path. And that, that could have been great too. But I just think that um, this field is emerging so quickly and there's so many different kinds of experiences and, and um, opportunities that I think it's good to be open to things. My other big piece of advice is um, that graduate school is a great thing and everyone should do it, but you shouldn't do it because you don't know what to do um, career-wise. You should do it when you know how you want it to advance your career. So I didn't go back to get my PhD till I was 30. And that was, um, you know, I was old, but I was so much more ready to use those classes and to know, like when it came time to write a paper, I knew what I was interested in and how I wanted to apply everything I was learning into, in that class to a particular issue that I was already deep in. So I, I think it's a really, I, I think it's very powerful to um, use graduate school strategically that way. That's pretty cool. Um, why is the Walton family interested in the Mississippi? Like, did they kind of grow up in the watershed or something? Yeah, um, they chose those when they started the program. They chose the Colorado and the Mississippi, and they chose them because of family connection. There's uh, family members who had guided and um, just spent a lot of time on the Colorado River, and and they brought the rest. They brought other family members into their interest area, so the family loves to. They have all been through the Grand Canyon, and they love to spend time there. 
And um, the connection to the Mississippi, you know, they're from Arkansas and they grew up canoeing and kayaking in the Ozark streams. They have a particularly strong connection to the Buffalo River and have been involved in conservation there and in other of those Ozark rivers and streams for, I don't know, at least 30 years, maybe longer, maybe 40 years. So, you know, they identified with the Mississippi and, and had always been concerned about its health and, and then um, about the dead zone as it reaches the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool that they've been on the Colorado River because that's what I did. I grew up on rivers and it it really led me to such an appreciation of the natural world and the natural beauty. And, and I've been on the Amazon and the Nile and uh, Patagonia and up on the Great Slave River. So I'm like a huge, huge river person. And when I was kayaking when I was a teenager, there wasn't a lot of plastic pollution. So we would drink out of plastic bottles because back then I didn't know about them. I mean, usually I had a Nelgene, but you know, if you needed a plastic bottle, you wouldn't really think think twice about it. But uh, then now, like I just went to Peru last year and I noticed on the Rio Bamba, like all the eddies were just thick with plastic, right? So it's yeah. interesting to see how the rivers have got worse for plastic pollution. And um, they're really just really beautiful. And when you get into whitewater, you start to recognize the power of nature because sometimes the river will put you maybe not where you want to go but (laughs) you have to kind of work with the river and you can it's cool to learn a a skill and be able to navigate something so powerful and beautiful but yeah that's definitely a big part of who I am is is rivers and certainly the Colorado River was part of that and uh, I'm I'm really grateful for my time on there so drop what you can and go because it'll 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 change your life a little bit, I think, to be in that area for so long, too, and it takes so long to get down there. I think it's like 17 to 20 days or something. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. Awesome. Well, this has been this has been so wonderful. It's been a great conversation with you, and we haven't done anything on wetlands before, and uh, it's a very important part of the natural world, and, and on the Zero Waste Countdown, we like to find ways to preserve the natural world and, you know, not pollute it so much and not be so wasteful in our lives. And I like to hear about what we're trying to save. And and rivers and wetlands are certainly one of them. Um, so it's been very uh, kind of eye-opening to talk to you about this. It's been great. Good. I, I really enjoyed it too. Thank you for having me. Awesome. That was Maura McDonald. She's serving as the Interim Environmental Director of the Walton Family Foundation. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.